Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we take a look at what Jesus is really asking Christians to do. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. Now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Have a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Uh, We um, have been in a year-long series. We're almost. We're we're kind of on the last stretch now, but we've been in a year-long series through the Gospel of Matthew, really exploring the life of Jesus as told by Matthew. Um, and we call this initially the, the least likely disciple. Of all the disciples, Matthew's the least likely. He was uh, a tax collector and hated by his culture for being a tax collector. And yet Jesus calls him to be a disciple. And Matthew ends up uh, changing the world. Um, he, he writes the, the gospel that in many ways um, allows uh, the, the faith to kind of take off in the ancient world. Uh, so we're, we're, we've been exploring that. Um, my hope is uh, that... We've been filling in some of the gaps in um, kind of how we think of Jesus. I think for many of us, we have like these big stories that we know of Jesus. And, you know, you know, like the, okay, I know the virgin birth story, the Christmas story. Maybe we know a couple of parables that Jesus taught, some of his earthly, like maybe a miracle or two. Uh, And then we know uh, Jesus died on a cross and he rose again. Um, So we know some of the big stories. My hope is, though... That as we've gone, gone slowly, like story by story by story, um, what you're beginning to see is that uh, some of the stuff in between is filling in some of the gaps of it all. I'm hoping that you're finding Jesus to be even more compelling, even more brilliant, uh, even more uh, courageous and loving than, um, than before. So that's, that's been my goal in this series. Uh, is to, I, I want you to see Jesus for who Jesus is. Um, if, we're, if we call ourselves Christians, we model ourselves on Christ. And uh, so our hope is to get kind of, okay, who is Jesus? What, how did he, how did he uh, li- live? And with the challenges he faced, how did he walk through those challenges? Because uh, if we can begin to see that, then we can begin to see, okay, I'm facing my own challenges. Um, and so if we can see how Jesus dealt with loneliness or shame or disease or heartache, uh, then we can say, okay, well, how I now see how this applies to my life when I go through loneliness and heartache and shame and all of those things. Um, so that's been our goal in the series. Um, I hope that's happened. I hope that happens today. Uh, today, what I want to talk through um, is that uh, I want to I talk about those moments where you find yourself trapped, because um, this is a story in which Jesus is essentially, uh, they're trying to trap him. And I want to talk about and think about those moments together. I'm, I have a hunch, just given the time of the year it is and the kind of climate of our culture, that this will be relevant to many of us. Um, but let me, uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week. Uh, I will do my best to make sure if you're new with us that you kind of know what we're talking about. But uh, let's pick up where we left off last week. Um, last week, uh, we saw that Jesus came under attack by a group of people known as the Herodians and the Pharisees. Here's where the story Picks up verse 23 of Matthew 22. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. That same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down on line to the seventh. 
Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? That's the, that's the question. You ever, uh, you ever been asked a question and everything in you is like, okay, I don't think that this is a sincere question. This feels like a trap. Like, it, like the whole question is kind of this ridiculous, like it kind of feels like a trap. I, um, just this week, I was talking to this, uh, this guy at the gym and um, there was a news station on in the background. And so it's usually at the gym, it's like there's a group that tries to turn the news on and then there's a group that tries to turn ESPN on. And uh, I'm in the latter of the two groups. But uh, the news is on. And so this, uh, I was talking to this guy kind of in between working out. And he, he at one point, he says to me, he's like, oh, can you believe it? I was like, yeah, what? He goes, can you believe it? Like I, every once in a while, I just want to grab them by the throat and shake them. I don't trust anyone anymore. And then he says, very stable kind of conversation to be having at the gym. Uh, and then he says to me, he's like, so what do you think about? And then he pointed out what was on the TV, some controversial issue. He's like, so what do you think about that? And I, in my head, I'm thinking, I don't think this is a safe space to have this conversation. Like, I, <laughs> like I, I don't know that. Like, it just kind of feels like you I don't have a lot of strong opinions in life, but I feel less throat shaking is better. And so I'm like, I, I don't know that I can... <laughs> I'm pretty anti-throat shaking. Uh, and so I don't know how to respond to this. Um, but like, have you ever been in a spot where it's like, okay, th- this question doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel like, like, I love having the conversations with people who want to engage tough conversations or tough issues and really wrestle, th- wrestle with it and, and think through it. And are really kind of open to change, but have some strong opinions. But there are times where it just doesn't feel like that. You walk in, it's like, this feels like a trap. Jesus here, we're told that the, this, this group of people come to Jesus, Sadducees, they come to Jesus. Uh, Matthew then says in kind of a parenthetical, they don't believe in the resurrection. But then they tell this kind of ridiculous, like, uh, what if someone gets married and then they die and somebody gets married to the same woman and they die and then somebody gets married. And then seven, seven times down the line, whose wife is she in heaven? It's kind of this ridiculous, I mean, maybe that would happen. I don't know potentially could happen, but the whole question's kind of feeling like a trap. You ever been in a situation where it's like, you're sitting down at the dinner table, maybe this is like Thanksgiving coming up, uh, and you're sitting down at the dinner table and somebody says a politician's name, and you're like, okay, that, just naming the name is gonna, because we know where he stands and we know where she stands, and as soon as you say that name, this is like a trap. Um, Now I've got to like, this feels like a trap. Have you ever been asked your opinion on a controversial issue? Um, For instance, race or human sexuality or what's your opinion on Roe v. Wade? And and like, doesn't feel like the conversation was actually like, we want to have an an intelligent conversation about this. We want to like wrestle it with like, where do you stand? How should we stand? How does a Christian uh, stand on these issues? It didn't, doesn't feel like that as that question's asked to you. Sometimes those questions are asked and that's how it feels. But have you ever been in a spot where that, a question's asked about your opinion on something and the whole time you're thinking, I feel like this is a trap. Um, because it's, it's a complex issue, but what they're looking for is a very soundbite, simple answer. And it's going to rob the whole conversation of all the complexity. And really what they want to know is, so tell me, are you one of us or are you one of them? And you know, no matter uh, how nuanced you make your answer, they're going to be saying you're either one of us or you're one of them. Uh, This passage feels like Jesus is in one of those situations. They want to trap him. What do you say? What do you think? What do you believe about this all? 
Um, it happens with politics. It doesn't just happen with politics. It happens with relationships a lot, right? We get in these spots with relationships, um, friendships where you recognize you know something or, or a conversation's brought up. And as soon as you respond, all of a sudden, this is the, the way I respond to this question or the way I respond to this conversation will change how our relationship plays out from this point on. Um, there are those moments in a marriage where you're like, okay, how I respond in this moment will have consequences. So I got to think through what I'm going to say because whatever I say, it, it could get read as either this or as this. Um, Jesus in this, in this situation is in a spot where they're trying to trap him. Now, what I want to show you is I want to walk through, kind of do some context, history, work with you. I want, to, I want to show you the nuance behind the attack. I want to take you behind the scenes a little bit on, um, on all that's going on because it's pretty loaded. Um, but then I want, to, I want to try to drill it all down to, so we'll do some of that work, and then I want to drill it down to one really simple, really practical, uh, like a line or a phrase. Um, for me, I've repeated this phrase often that it's become like a mantra Something you can do in these moments or say in these moments that actually comes out of how Jesus responds to these moments um, that I think I find to be helpful. So, uh, so we'll kind of do some work. Um, I'll do some history with you all and some context, and then we're going like, to try to drill it all down to like what's a thing we can say, what's to ourselves at least, uh, in these moments to kind of frame the moments. Okay, so before we go there, um, I know not all of us were here for the last few weeks, so let me give you the um, the, the really fast, the really simple flyover of the last three weeks. So we've been, um, I think it was three or four weeks ago, we, we noticed that Matthew's gospel was moving pretty fast. Jesus, over the course of three years, Matthew's gospel for 20 chapters covers three years of Jesus' life. And then we get to chapter 21 and time slows way down. Uh, beginning in chapter 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a Sunday known as Palm Sunday. Uh, the crowds are cheering him on. They're shouting Hosanna. They're calling him a king. Uh, they're waving palm branches. Um, that's on Sunday. What, we're, what we then noticed was the next several chapters all take place within just a handful of days, really one week. Uh, but most of them really in the days between Sunday and when they crucify him on Friday. There's all of this stuff that's been jammed in this week. And so we've been slowly walking through, okay, what, is, what happened that would, would take a group of people that were saying, he's our king, Hosanna, save us now. And just a few days later, a crowd is gathered who's shouting, crucify him. Give us the terrorist Barabbas. We don't want him anymore. Kill him. What happens in those four days? So Sunday, he comes in, Palm Sunday. Uh, the first thing he does is he heads down the Mount of Olives. Do I have a, maybe I have a map of, yeah, okay, close enough. That's a map. Um, so uh, this is uh, Jerusalem, uh, Mount of Olives. He comes down and he heads into the city. So uh, let me show you an image. Okay, so uh, Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley. This is the Valley of Hinnom, um, also known as Gehenna, which is the word that gets translated hell. By the way, sales plug. Uh, in two weeks, we're doing a series, the three, a three-part series called Hell, Judgment Day and the Rapture. It's going to be a good time. Um, we'll try to talk about it. <laughs> This is Gehenna. Uh, this is uh, the Kidron Valley. Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives. His first step is in, uh, this is the ruins of the Temple Mount. This is the ruins of the Temple Mount. His first step is to go into the Temple Mount where he sees all of this corruption happening. He 
flips the tables, cleanses the Temple Mount of all this idolatry. He then leaves, comes down, sees a group of uh, Sadducees, and the Sadducees kind of have some questions for him, and uh, he goes back and forth with them. He then meets, uh, there's a fig tree cursing in there, which was the symbol of the priesthood in his day. And so there's all this loaded language. Uh, The Sadducees attack him, and then last week we looked at the story in which the Herodians kind of join forces with the Pharisees, and they attack him. The If you step back from this whole thing, what you begin to see is there's all these groups. And Jesus is interacting with all these different groups of people. The Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees. And um, we talked about how there's another sect of of priests known as the Essenes. I think John the Baptist is one of the, the Essenes, or at least identified with the Essenes. And so you've got all of these groups, and all of them are trying to figure out, who are you, Jesus? Are you on our team or not? Because if you're not on our team, if you're on our team, you're the king. But if you're not on our team, you got to die. If you're not, so it's either you're the greatest ever and we want you on, or we don't want you. So all this is trying to play out. Now, it's easy enough to like look at all of those religious groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, uh, Herodians, Zealots, to look at all these different groups and say, okay, those are religious people. We can read our Bible that way, right? Like, just like, okay, and then Jesus talked to more religious people, and then he met other religious people. And that's true. The, the, most of them are religious people. The Herodians, probably more, like, more secular kind of people. But by and large, uh, these are mostly religious people. Um, however, it's really important as you're reading your Bible to understand that these religious groups didn't agree with each other. Uh, that's maybe even too soft. Some of them hated each other. Many of them were just families um, that disagreed on things like we see in our world today. But many of them took those disagreements and it was uh, take our kind of how the left sees the right or Republicans see Democrats and, and amplify that. That's how these religious groups, because for them, it's, it's politics and religion smashed together. Who's going to save our country? And who is right in the eyes of God? So these groups just don't agree with each other. And all of them want to know, Jesus, whose side are you on? Are you one of us or are you not one of us? Now, um, so we've been exploring a little bit of where they came from, uh, where some of these groups came from. Um, We've noticed that there's another story. So Jesus, Palm Sunday, comes down the Temple Mount. There's another story from history that Matthew seems to be holding side by side with this story. That to understand the last week of Jesus' life, it's really important to understand this other story. Um, in many ways, they're similar. That other story, again, we're in review land. Um, if you're in new land, like I've never heard this before. This is a lot, I'm, I understand that. Um, but if you're in review land, hopefully this is helpful. Uh, the other story takes place about 200 years before this moment. Um, it's a story that uh, to this day is celebrated with the festival of Hanukkah by our Jewish friends. But about 200 years before uh, this story, the Greeks are in charge. And the Greeks are brutal. The Greeks, uh, they, they take over much of the world. Alexander the Great, and then he passes it on to a couple generals. And one of the lands they conquer is Israel. Now, the Greeks, they want to, at first they decide, how do we make sure these, uh, these Israelites, these Jewish people, stay in line? Their first strategy was, well, what if we give them Greek culture? Give them theater. Give them uh, arenas. Give them sports. What if we gave them uh, the gymnasium? They come in with this. If we gave them all of these things, they're going to want to be one of us. 
However, it didn't play out like that. These Jewish people, no matter what they did, they just were not bowing down, and they hated them for it. They hated their customs. They hated the tassels. They hated that they ate kosher. Like, why won't you eat pig? Bacon is delicious. They hate all of this. They, they especially hate that they will not bow down to their gods. That's blasphemy. So under the leadership of a, of a general named Antiochus Epiphanes, they decide to take it from, okay, we're going to try to be try to get them to want to be Greek, to we'll just force them to be Greek. We'll kind, like You either are going to comply or die. We're going to force you. Now, the way they decide to start that is, what if we started by taking away their religion? seems to be like the religion's at the center of what they do. If we can take their religion, we can, we can essentially force them to comply. So how do they do that? Well, the first step they do is, what if we could, in the Temple Mount, we could put up statues of our gods, a statue of Zeus, an altar to Dionysus, the god of wine and partying. And then what if we sacrificed in the temple pigs, those unclean, unkosher animals? Then what they noticed was they kept worshiping. They found ways to keep worshiping. Okay, what if we killed their worship leaders? Like, the, the priests. What if we killed a bunch of their worship leaders? Then they'll stop worshiping. But no matter how far they went, these Jewish people kept worshiping to the point where one gentleman by the name of Judas Maccabee says, it's gone on long enough. They've pushed us long enough. We have to fight back. We cannot let them push us around like this. We got to stand up for ourselves. He gathers a, a, a militia, an army together, and they decide to fight the Greeks. Yada, yada, yada. They win. They defeat the Greeks. The oil keeps burning. Hanukkah. They get their independent. Their end of independent. Words are hard. Independence. Uh, they win. Judas Maccabee's first move after defeating the Greeks is he needs to reclaim the temple. So he heads into the temple to the cries of Hosanna, the waving of palm branches, and the singing of children. He marches into the temple where he gets rid of the Zeus altar. He gets rid of the, the, or the altar of Dionysus and the statue of Zeus. He reclaims the temple. His next move, we need leaders. Our last leaders failed us. We need new leaders. Should we appoint it? We can't appoint a king because the kings keep messing up. What if we let God lead? Okay, but how is that going to actually look? Okay, well, what if we follow the scriptures and we have God as our king under the leadership of priests? The priests will kind of administrate the, the leadership. Okay, well, which priests? There's a lot of priests. Well, what if we found the, the first high priest of the first temple and we have his family lead? His name, by the way, was a guy named Zadok. Uh, Zadok, um, his family by that point grew to seven families. Um, the families of Zadok or the Zadoks, or in Hebrew, it's the Zadokim, or in English, it's the Sadducees. They become the leadership. These family of priests, uh, they're known in your Bible as either the Sadducees or the chief priests. They become the leadership. The Sadducees or the chief priests take this job very seriously. Um, but within a few years, the power goes to their head. They begin wanting the stuff of, Greeks, of the Greeks. We kind of like the theater. We kind of like the arena. We kind of like the gymnasium. And quickly, the power, uh, quickly they begin abusing the power. A group known as the Essenes, priests, decide, I don't know, I don't like what you're doing. Um, by the way, in order to justify what they're doing, they have to basically say, the majority of the Bible, we don't think stands anymore. 
The first five books of the Bible, they said, those are the ones we are to follow. Those are about the priests. But the prophets, we don't think the prophets really mean, we don't have to listen to the prophets. We don't have to listen to those things. Uh, heaven, that, that would mean that heaven, hell, resurrection, angels, all those things come from the prophets. We don't got to listen to that. We don't believe in that. A group of priests say, you've gone too far, and they decide to move away. Um, this group is known as the Essenes. Let me take you to a map. They moved to a place called Qumran, uh, set up a monastic community in several spots. We found one in Qumran. Um, it's where we get our Dead Sea Scrolls. Many of the Dead Sea Scrolls are the copying of the prophets. You understand why? You can't cut those out of our Bible. Okay, so that's, that's the review. That's where we've been. Let me add some things. Uh, let me add one thing um, that fills in a few. Hopefully will be helpful as we run through our story um, that will fill in the gaps. It wasn't just the Essenes who move away because of what the Sadducees are doing. There is another group of people. They're not priests. They're just normal people, like most of us. They're normal people. But they love God, and they love the Scriptures. And they cannot stand for what the Sadducees are doing to their religion, to their nation. This group of people calls themselves the Hasidim, or the holy ones, or the pious ones. The Hasidim. This group of people decide, first they try to talk the Sadducees into some sense. doesn't work. No matter what they do, the Sadducees are too powerful. So the Hasidim decide, we're going to move away. They move north. They settle in a region known as the Galilee. Show you a map. Again. Um, Galilee. And they set up cities like Chorazin, Capernaum, Magdala, Tiberias, Cana, Nazareth. You know many of these cities because Jesus is from this land. This is where Jesus has most of his ministry. They move north. They set up their, they live quiet lives. They do quiet jobs, fishermen, stonemasons, um, builders, quiet jobs. They set up little homes called insulas where they live as a community and they study the, the, the Torah, the scriptures. There's a synagogue at the center of every one of these communities. They live simple lives. But then there's a problem. This is like the, the moment in the story where the, the Billie Eilish song kicks on, like the dark tones, right? You know who Billie Eilish is? Asher kids, they know. Um, this is like the, the, mo- the, the tides change because the Romans are coming in. And the, we talked about the Romans. We actually talk about the Romans a lot here because it's really hard to understand the New Testament without understanding the Romans. The Romans come in and they decide we're going to finish the job that the Greeks couldn't. We're taking it over. The Romans come in um, and... To really simplify things, the Romans are awful. Uh, They will crucify you on the spot if you dare look at them wrong. The Romans uh, laid seeds to entire villages. Uh, Many villages you're familiar with. Magdala, burned to the ground. It's where Mary Magdalene comes from. Magdala, burned to the ground. Uh, Sepphoris, destroyed. Gamla, or uh, Gamla is destroyed. Emmaus, the the road to Emmaus, destroyed. 3,000 people crucified on the spot. The Romans are brutal. And the way the Romans lead is they bring in their legions of soldiers and they hire tax collectors uh, through this puppet king named Herod. That's where you get the word Herodian from. They work for Herod. Uh, And now you've got an issue if you're a Hasidim. You moved north to get away from the corruption. You just want to worship God, raise your family, live a quiet life. 
You're just, it's like moving out of a city and into the suburbs or into the country because you're just trying to get away from the noise. But the noise followed them. Now what do we do? One group of the, now you see a divide in the Hasidim. Half of the Hasidim say, or some of the Hasidim say, we got to fight. Just like Judas Maccabees. We need to fight these Romans. We got to take a stand. Another group said, no. We have to devote ourselves to scripture. We need to pray that God would, would, would free us from the Romans, but we do not fight. Pray. Why would we pray when God's given us the hands and the heart to fight? Because we cannot be killers. So the scriptures are clear about this. But sometimes you got to take a stand. But sometimes you have to trust. Okay, so it went back and forth. These two groups, one referred to themselves as the zealots, will kill. The other referred to themselves as the Pharisees. Devote yourself to the text. Study the scriptures. Pharisees. This is important to know, especially in our world. Many of these people were in the same family. Father was a Pharisee. Son was a zealot. Mom was a zealot. Daughter was a Pharisee. Many of them lived in the same family. It was a different world. They, many of the same theological beliefs, but how do we deal with the problems of our world we disagreed on? Does this sound familiar to our culture, right? Uh, some, of the, some of the zealots move away and they set up their own camps, but most of them, so uh, Gamla, I think I have a picture of Gamla. This is a zealot camp. Gamla means camel. You can see why they named the mountain camel. Um, they set up a camp, essentially, uh, between the Romans and between their families, they build a military bunker, call it Gamla, and they say, if you're going to get to our families, you have to go through us. And they, and they fight. And there's a, you see the gap in the, where the Romans eventually come in and destroy them. Um, but many of them live in the same family. They, they've got to figure this out. Now, here's our scene. All of these groups, scattered around Israel, scattered around the world in many ways, once a year, have to come back and all go to the same spot. God said, every Passover, I want my family to come back together. I don't care where you end up going. It's like family reunion times, on, you know, a nation. I don't care where you've been. We need to be a nation committed to each other, committed to God. So every year on Passover, come together. And so you've got all of these groups of people. You've got the Pharisees, back to my map. Pharisees. Head south. You've got the Essenes. They head west. You've got the, uh, the Sadducees, those priests, head from their rich homes. The Herodians head from the rich homes. The Zealots head south. You've got all of these people now. The scene is set. All of these people who all worship the same God, but they think very differently about the problems of their world. And they're all on the Temple Mount. They're all here. And in these courts, and they hear Jesus come into the city. He's our king, just like Maccabees. And they all want to know, okay, are you with us or are you with the other ones? You feel the tension of the whole thing, right? You kind of feel the, um, and what you discover was Jesus isn't taking sides. He's, he's called out the Pharisees. He's called out the Sadducees. He's called out the Herodians. Like he keeps, he keeps pointing at the things within each of these groups as, like, here's where you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. 
and the tides begin to turn. We're not so sure he's one of us. And with that, let's get back into our story. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 23. Notice the trap. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Okay, so you get the trap here a little bit. They don't believe in the resurrection. They only believe in those first five books. Moses told us, this is what you have to do. Your brother dies. It's, it's your responsibility to, to make sure his widowed wife is cared for. Okay, so that's what happens if there's seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. It's his job, his responsibility. Make sure she's okay. Same thing happened to the second, the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them are married to her? See the trap? They don't believe in the resurrection. They say, okay, this is a situation unlikely to happen, but it could happen. It could happen. What are you going to say about that, Jesus? Because on this earth, if that situation happens, we know what to do with it. We know that it's the brother's responsibility for the wife. But, but which one is going to be holding her hand at the resurrection? Okay. They're, they're mocking him. They're, in their head, they're thinking, gotcha, gotcha. What are you going to say to that? You're going to have to say, there's no resurrection then. Or may, like, gotcha. Okay, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I, that is just... Awesome. Uh, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, so they try to trap him. Here's Jesus' like judo kick uh, move on them. Metaphorical judo kick. Jesus uses, so for any, um, you have any English teachers? Elementary teachers, maybe you're teaching English. Um, Jesus uses grammar. That's how he wins the debate. (laughs) He uses grammar. Jesus' question, it all hangs on the tense of a verb. He says, doesn't Moses, because that's the book they believe, doesn't Moses say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If there is no resurrection, shouldn't he have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Okay, so simple, and yet notice how they respond. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He does it. It's like they come at him. He bobs and weaves and comes back at them and does it with grammar. Pay attention in English class, kids. Uh, so next up, so Sadducees step back. It's kind of like, like the rap battle scene from 8 Mile where like the next one's coming in and they got their punchlines. Here's the next one. The Pharisees are coming in. Um, Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with his question, with this question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in Torah, in the law? What's the greatest commandment in Torah? Now, um, this is a trap. What's the trap? Um, For us, it doesn't feel like that big of a trap. The trap is, this was actually a pretty serious debate amongst the Pharisees themselves. So that group in the north, the Hasidim, this was a debate for them. All Pharisees said that the greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Shema. That's the prayer that God teaches us to pass down to our families for generations to come. That's the greatest command. But where they disagreed was what came next. There were two camps. 
On one side, under the leadership of a rabbi named Shammai, Shammai said that Leviticus 19.2 is the second greatest commandment. What's Leviticus 19.2? Be holy as God is holy. How does that get played out? You honor the Sabbath. So love God, be holy, honor the Sabbath. Shammai. The other group, under the leadership of a guy named Hillel, um, we talked about Shammai and Hillel when we talked about divorce in February or March. Um, Hillel said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the greatest commandment. The second is like it. The second greatest commandment, Leviticus 19, not verse 2, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a debate. Now, they know how Jesus is going to. This is why it's a trap. They know how he's going to answer the question. They've seen how he's lived. They know where he sides. They know he's going Hillel. But here's why it's a trap. They're going to get him to say it out loud. The zealots, in a few years before this, publicly declared that Hillel was, um, to use language our world would use, uh, wishy-washy, snowflake, like he's got no spine. Shammai's our man, the zealots said. Uh, The Sadducees said, Shammai's our man. Um, He's about holiness, and that means you go to the temple. All of the other factions all said Shammai's our guy. Hillel, he's like, he's into love. But what about justice? He's into love. But what about truth? Shammai says, well, that's where we are different. They know Jesus is going to say Hillel. The trap is, as soon as he says it, this whole crowd who's cheering him on as king, they're going to hear that, and they're going to say, well, he must not be one of us. Notice how Jesus responds. Verse 37, he replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. They all agreed on that. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Hillel. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, Hillel, you're right. To which they all hear, you know what? You zealots, he'll never fight for you. You think he's like Maccabees? He'll never fight for you. You Herodians, he doesn't respect Herod. Hillel didn't respect Herod. He doesn't respect Sadducees. He, those priests, he's not going to follow the traditions. He's not concerned with that. You, you Essenes, he's not interested in holiness. You cheered him on, but you never knew this about him. This is like that trap moment where it's like, oh yeah, but what about this? It's like the week before election and something comes out, right? Like it's, but if you only knew this, this is their, this is their card. Notice how Jesus responds. It's like Jesus is almost like, okay, you want to play? Let's play. Um, Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now Jesus here is doing this brilliant thing around like, the Son of God piece, right? There's a brilliant, but there's something else really, really brilliant going on here that I think we miss. Um, remember, for those who've been here for a while, remember Ramez? Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. I cannot think of one psalm that individually points out the weakness in every one of the Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, all of their... The, All of us in our belief systems have an idol somewhere, right? Like the goal of life is trying to figure out what is an accidental idol that I might be worshiping. Psalm 110 calls out their accidental idols. Let me read you Psalm 110. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, That's what Jesus quotes. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Who's king? Who's the king? Yahweh is the king, not Herod, you Herodians. You're wrong. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your younger men, your young men, will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews will quote this. Um, You Sadducees and you Essenes think he's not a, a right, you think I'm not a rightful leader because I'm not a priest. And then for the zealots, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along his way and soul will lift his head high. Whose job is it to crush the kings of the world? Not your job, zealots. This is God's job. I went through that quickly. You see the the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here. Okay, let let me try to... Um, to take what's really complex and make it really, really as simple as I can. Because it's possible to take something simple and make it too complex. So let me try to say this simply. Jesus calls out people who are using religion to get whatever it is they want. And they're using God, and they're using power, and they're using systems, and they're using structures. And Jesus simply says, don't you quote your verses at me. Don't you try to point your theological points at me. Um, Don't you pretend to be united with each other. You don't like, you're just pretending to try to tap. Don't, don't do this. And then verse 46, no no one could say a word in reply for that day. No one dared ask him the questions. He, they understood what he was saying to them. What Jesus does, and I think it has, there's such a courage here and such a, a, a meekness at the same time. Jesus reminds his audience again and again to keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, I hope that as we've been, we're in chapter 22 of Matthew, I hope you've seen by now that Jesus is very smart. Like, he's smart. Jesus could have done the political thing. Right? This is what we would say, like a smart political strategy would have been. He's smart enough to do this. He could have gone up to the Pharisees and said, you know what, guys, I think you're right. I, actually, I agree with you. Holiness is the best way. Like, I, I'm one of the Hasidim. I live by you guys. Uh, then he could have gone over to the Zealots and been like, listen, you saw how I came into the city. I'm Judas Maccabee's boy. Like, come on. Like, I'm one of you. And then he could have gone over to the Sadducees and said, listen, guys, like, I'm trying to help you out. Like, come on. Like, Jesus is smart enough that he could have won them all over by telling them what they wanted to hear. But what Jesus again and again does is he points them back to the main thing. Jesus again and again keeps the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? That Jesus calls them back to again and again and again and again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The main thing is the main thing for Jesus. Watch his life. He's not lost that mission once. Watch what he's willing to die for. It's this. The main thing to Jesus is the main thing. I think the trap in our, I know my heart, is all of the, I can, I can easily see myself falling for the Essene camp, right? I can see myself saying, you know what, the religious establishment, I'm done with you, religious establishment, we'll move off and kind of, I'll be like a monk in a desert somewhere. Or I could easily see myself um, falling for the Herodian thing, right? Like, you know what, we have one life, let's get rich, let's just like have some fun. 
Um, or the, the Sadducees, like power's kind of nice. I've worked harder than them. I, I, like, like Jesus again and again calls out the idol in each of their camps and points them back at the main thing. Love the Lord your God and love others. Now, um, if you're not a Christian, you get a free pass. You don't believe this. It's okay. Like, like if you're not a Christian, you are allowed to say, you know what? I'm just going to do a Herodian thing. Get rich. That's the one I would probably choose if I wasn't a Christian, right? If I wasn't a Christian, I'd say, I'm going to line up with the Herodians because money and power and partying is their like, whole thing. Um, or maybe the Sadducees because they climb into the top of the ladder. But unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at this, if you're a Christian, we don't get the choice. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. We don't get to choose. Jesus doesn't give us, an, well, but, but, you know, in a tight election season, then you can. Or, you know, but when it's a, we have to keep the main. Jesus does not give us a buy on this. Um, the main thing has to be the main thing. Love God and love others. John will say, uh, his disciple John, that the world will know that we are Christians by our ability to do that, by our love. Um, Paul will say that if we do all the other things in the world, if we, we could speak in angelic tongues and know all mysteries and all knowledge, but have we not love? We ha- if we have not love, we're like a gong, a banging gong and a clanging cymbal. It's pretty harsh. Right? So it's, like, um, like, if you're a Christian, we don't have the option of any other main thing. That, the main thing has to be the main thing. Um, you ever, here's a, here's a fun uh, internet search. I'll let you do your internet search on your own, but here's a fun internet search. Look up, you had only one job on the internet and just Google image someday. Let me show you a couple of my favorites. Um, you had only one job. Uh, you find, uh, <laughs> next one, hot dog buds. <laughs> I love that one. I could see myself being like, you know what? It's not worth it. Um, <laughs> you had one job. School-free drug zone. <laughs> okay, let this one sit. You can take this one. Takes a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you had one job. Long yellow things. <laughs> that one I think is my favorite, and also probably the darkest of all the humor in there. Um, <laughs> for those of you who know. Horoscopes. <laughs> when you see things like this, you're like, how can that, how honestly, if you had one job, could you blow it so bad? Like, this is the one thing you wake up in the morning and your job today is to paint the lines on the road and you're going to, like, not move a tree branch. Or you're, like, you have one job. We look at this and we laugh because, like, we have, you have one job and how do you mess up stop? <laughs> like, how do you get that far into it and be like, eh, it's good enough. Let's put the P on too. Like, like, how do you, like, you have one job and we look at that and say, that, that looks ridiculous. Christians look ridiculous when we forget that we had one job, right? Like, we are worthy of getting laughed at when it looks as though we put all of our hope and all of our... When we forget we have one job, to the outside world, it's either laughable or it's horrifying. Um, To those who don't profess Jesus, um, we kill our witness, um, but it's it's laughable or horrifying, it makes us look like all they care about is their Sunday, how big their Sunday numbers are, or all they care about is getting a politician in office when we forget we have one job. Now, does this mean you have to be spineless? Was Jesus spineless? 
Have you seen Jesus be spineless at all yet? Like Jesus had a spine. This does not mean, does this mean you have to let anything that's bad like just roll over and let it play out? No, Jesus was willing to confront sin again and again. But how you do that matters. Here's the mantra. Um, here's the, the phrase that has been really, really helpful. I'm stealing this phrase. I didn't come up with this phrase. It comes from Pastor Andy Stanley. Um, I find it to be really helpful. Pastor Andy Stanley will say, uh, the best question you can ask is the question, what does love require of me? It's worth writing down. What does love require of me? When you find yourself in a trap, when you find yourself with a really hard situation, what does love require me in this moment with this person right now? What does love require? What does love require? Sometimes love is going to require you to confront some things, right? That just happens a lot, actually. Love requires me that I gotta, I, I gotta talk to them about this. It's gone on too long. It's become a, a problem. We gotta talk. Sometimes love is gonna mean you know what? Right now, it's they don't, what the what the world needs less of is my opinion on this matter. I'll just uh, I'll try to not speak. What does love require of me in this moment with this person right now? We have one job. Uh, it's how the world, again, if you, follow the, the, if you follow the promises of every one of Jesus' disciples, it's the way the world will know who we are. It's the way the world will know who he is. So this is the challenge. What does love require of us? Um, we're about to head into a contentious election cycle. Lots of Facebook posts to be, to be posted. Lots of uh, angry uh, text message threads to be had. As Christians, how do we show up in those moments? This is the challenge. Doesn't mean you have to necessarily have less conviction. Doesn't mean that you don't confront. But how do we show up in those moments? Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, uh, Jesus, we, are, we stand in awe of you, Lord. We stand in awe of who you are, Lord. We stand in awe again and again of the way you, um, you lived a life of absolute love and absolute passion. Uh, Lord, we recognize that for some of us, um, for many of us, Lord, this is really tough. It's really tough. Um, for many of us, we've been taught that love means we do nothing and we just smile. Um, and for others, Lord, we feel like we have to confront and we forget how to do it in love. Lord, we pray that you would form us to be like you. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you reveal in us where we have strayed and would you help us to find center again? Uh, Lord, we love you. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your strong, beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? Once again, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org. Or for all of our current signups and available groups, find us also at harborchurches.churchcenter.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., we'll stream our service live. For those of you without a Facebook account, our Facebook page is open to the public. We invite you to join us there. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.